A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I always believe you should mock authoritarians. You should mock dictators. You should mock these, these hyper-populist guys because they're so delicate. Underneath all of them is the wounded, the wounded little boy who didn't get laid till he was in his after out of college. Yeah, you know, these guys are all of the, they're they're all of a type. No, I don't care if they control vast armies; they still have this shitty fragility about them. And humor is their kryptonite. They hate it. Welcome to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros, and my glittering lineup of guests from the worlds of business, sport, politics, and entertainment, who are going to share their wisdom and their use of humor with you. Humorology is the study of how humor can dramatically improve your business and your life. Humorology puts the fun into business fundamentals, increases the value of your laughing stock, and puts a punchline back into your bottom line. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. My guest on this edition of the Humorology podcast is a 30-year veteran of US politics as a strategist, commentator and satirist. He's constantly called on for sharp-edged and witty political insight on the national news networks, including CNN and MSNBC. He's also a frequent guest on Real Time with Bill Maher. As one of the founders of the Lincoln Project, a political action committee of present and former Republicans to prevent the re-election of Donald Trump, he effectively used humour to prick the bubble of pomposity. His book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, was hailed by The Guardian, saying it gives more unvarnished truths about Donald Trump than anyone else in the American political establishment has offered. His biography describes his run-of-the-mill hobbies as hunting, fishing, flying and overthrowing governments. Rick Wilson, welcome to the Humorology podcast. Thank you, Paul. Great to be with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm a huge fan of your work and uh, well done for um, getting it done. Well, thank you. It's um, it was one of those things that it was basically an existential choice about the country. Uh, you know, do we do we spend the rest of our lives in Gitmo or do we beat Donald Trump? And, you know, with all the things about, you know, saving the republic and the, all the minor side benefits that come from it. So here we are. <laughs> Tiny things like cool saving thing. the republic, you know. It's the small stuff. <laughs> um, how important do you think humor is now in political strategy? 
Well, look, it, it depends on the race in some in some degree. But we found, especially with a candidate like Donald Trump, who has this enormously um, um, well-developed sense of self-regard and this enormously fragile ego that by poking at that ego, by poking at it with, with humor, we did something that no one else would do. Because look, other people who criticize Trump would say, his language is inappropriate and he's a terrible person and he's, he's mean to women. And he, yes, we did all those things. But I also made the first dick joke about a president in a TV ad in the history of American politics. And, and, and we also hit him over and over again on this fragile self-conception. You know, he's a man who wears makeup and weighs nearly 300 pounds and wears lifts in his shoes to seem taller and is notoriously um, you know, delicate when it comes to the slightest criticism. And so ramping up all those attacks, it, didn't, it wouldn't do just to say, you know, Donald Trump is old and impotent. We had to make it funny. We had to make it cutting. And by doing that, you know, the Lincoln Project set out with a very serious political purpose in three areas. We wanted to psychologically wage war on Donald Trump, which we did. And a lot of that was with humor. We wanted to move soft Republican voters away from him, which we did. We wanted to block hard Republican voters from feeling comfortable about their vote, which we also did. But in that first column, the psychological warfare column, we went at Trump's ego in a lot of different ways. We went at his administration a lot of different ways. You know, we managed to run an ad called GOP Cribs, and we made it look like one of those MTV Cribs ads. Um, and and it, was, it was so over the top and so hilarious. And the girl who did the voiceover, you know, it's so funny because in real life, the voiceover talent has a just perfectly lovely, normal speaking voice, but she puts on this like, hey, Donald. And, you know, we wouldn't normally run an ad like that, but we knew he would pay attention when we did it. We knew he would lock in on it. And, the, and once we got him hooked into those things, making fun of him, sent him around the corner. And it wasn't just because we wanted to troll the guy. That was certainly part of it. We enjoy trolling as much as the next guys, right? <laughs> but it was also because Donald Trump would see one of those ads and then he would spend a day or a day and a half going crazy in the White House. And we know this because, you know, there's been a lot of reporting about it now. We had, we had people in the White House who were talking to us at the time in the campaign. And we knew that it drove him nuts. So, of course, if I know something drives Donald Trump nuts, I'm going to do more of it. And we, we kept that drumbeat, that cadence constantly running, you know, including some ads that I think are unique in American political history. I mean, the Covita ad that we did with the riff on Avita. Um, when Donald Trump got COVID and came back to the White House. That ad came from the fact that Steve Schmidt and I were on the phone late at night out in Park City, and we're talking back and forth. And, I, and, and he says, we should do something. He's like up on that balcony, like Avita. And I, I was like, wait, 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 wait. And there was a, about an hour of us designing the ad back and forth, singing to each other, making up, the, making up new lyrics to... Don't cry for me, Argentina. And, and, and when it hit, we knew that people in the White House, because they had tried to make this, this glorious comeback. They released this propaganda film of Trump striding manfully across the White House lawn and looking tall and vigorous. And we just ripped it apart. We just tore it up. And, and, and that approach works with a guy like Trump. 
Now, I always believe you should mock authoritarians, you should mock dictators, you should mock these, these hyper-populist guys because they're so delicate. Underneath all of them is the wounded, the wounded little boy who didn't get laid till he was in his after out of college. You know, these guys are all they're they're all of a type. They never played team sports. Yeah. They were always mama's boys. And they have this fragility about them. No, I don't care if they control vast armies, they still have this shitty fragility about them. And humor is their kryptonite. They hate it. Why do you think that he didn't f- have the nous to actually get some writers in and some people around him who could fight back with humor? Because it seemed that he wanted to do it all himself. Did, it, was that just ego? Well, it's twofold. One, no one who's actually funny wanted to work for Donald Trump. Ah, I mean, look, there, there is a subgenre in American comedy of Trumpian or MAGA political comedy. It is neither political nor comedy. Um, and it's, it's awful. And, and it's all about these resentments that they have. But Trump also believes that he's the master of television and that he sets the stage, the narrative, the themes, all these things. And we just, we weren't going to play that game. You know, Trump would come out and try to blow up the day and we would try to blow up the day in a different direction. And we frequently succeeded in that. And what a lot of people don't understand is, again, we weren't just trolling Donald Trump to troll him. We were trolling because when Joe Biden came out of the primary, his campaign was basically out of money. They were exhausted and disorganized. We were trying to buy Joe Biden days. We we're trying to buy him time. So the one thing you never get back in a campaign is time. Right. And so we were trying to get Joe Biden into a position where he had you know, the, the strength and the resources to fight at the level he would have to. And he did. But, you know, and we also knew that, you know, we raised $90 million last year. $90 million is a drop in the presidential campaign bucket, though. We won those successful super PACs in history and all this other stuff, but we still couldn't have gone up nationally and spent the money like Donald Trump did. So we had to be very targeted. We had to be very clever. We had to do things that had inherent humor and virality to them. Or, uh, uh, and the virality, it could come from either either being funny and witty and cutting and weird, or it could come from being emotionally resonant and powerful. I think it served us very well as an organization and a movement to be able to talk about things that that were lighter when we were also running ads about COVID and the economic devastation and the racial tensions and, and violence in the country. So, you know, we could have gone heavy handed all the way home, um, but we really felt like, especially when it came to to the narrative disruption ability and, and the psychological warfare against Trump, mocking him was more effective than saying, you know, here's a statistic and here's another statistic and it sucks and Donald Trump is to blame. You can do that, but he doesn't care about those things. I mean, do you, do you, think Trump, would... you, you can wake Donald Trump up and say, hey, you know, you're going to be president again, but the earth is going to be consumed in a fiery nuclear apocalypse. And he would say, what's the downside? <laughs> you know, he didn't care about anything except himself. Well, you've just uh, uh, sort of uh, said he's going to be president again and a shiver went up my spine. Do you what what are the chances? Because you've had your foot in both camps. You've been a Republican. You're now an independent. 
what does do your Republican friends say about that possibility? And do you really think they are they are simultaneously terrified and aroused? <laughs> it's like fucking your babysitter, you know, it, it, it's like it's like a moment of complete. They, they, they can't quite sort their emotions on it because they loved the sugar high of Trump. They loved not having responsibilities. They loved not having to explain anything. They loved having somebody they could go, eh, it's Trump, what are you gonna do? They loved that. Now that it's on them, they're in a much different position. They're in a much more, uh, they're, 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 in, they're in a much more tenuous spot. They loved that though. And they loved the sort of middle finger to decency and probity and and everything else they they enjoyed that freedom but it's it's a lord of the flies kind of freedom okay it is it is it inevitably devolves into things that are shitty and so they fear that return and yet they love it they also know that donald trump in the long term you know when i when i when i when i started using the phrase everything trump touches dies i meant it as a sort of witty little throwaway I didn't mean it as hundreds of thousands of Americans dying or anything like that, but as a political rule in this country, it's an iron law now. I mean, I, I'm like the fucking Isaac Newton of, of Donald <laughs> Trump laws, right? <laughs> Principa dickheadia. Um, and so this guy, you know, they, they think, okay, Trump let us be free. He let us turn up this white, white male base and we were able to do, you know, uh, anything we wanted. The difficulty for them is he repulses and repels every other voter demographic group over time. And the Democrats, God bless them, they are, they are, as I like to say, holistically terrible at politics. They're good at little slices of politics. They're extraordinary at some things. They suck at understanding the big, complex, multivariate problem. The return of Trump would be the ultimate multivariate problem for the Democrats. They would not know how to handle it. And right now they don't understand how much trouble they're really in. They have a majority in the House and Senate. And they're like, yay, it's permanent. No, it's not. <laughs> and you know, they've got a five-seat majority in the House and a tie ball game in the Senate. And so typically in an off-year election in America, the party out of power in the White House will pick up between 10 and 25 seats. So that's a House majority. And Mitch McConnell has already raised about $50 million to kill off the Democratic candidates in 2022. So this idea that Trumpism died with his leaving office is crazy. These guys that are running now are more Trumpy. They're more, they lack, they lack an even greater degree of, 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 of self-referential ability and knowledge. They, they cannot, they, they, they can't understand why, you know, people don't love the dear leader. Um, and it's going to be something that I think is is they're going to pay a price for it probably in 2022 um, by not taking Trumpism seriously. Gosh, oh well, that's something to look forward to, isn't I'm it? A, I'm I'm just full of good news today, Paul. <laughs> uh, well, let's take a little deviation. What makes you laugh, Rick? What makes me laugh? Um, bad people getting kicked in the nuts. Uh, no, um, well, no well, you must I, have been I, laughing a lot recently. I, I have a great deal. I, I take a great deal of pleasure from from beautiful wordplay. 
and, and a great deal of pleasure from, from, you know, my humor as the, the stuff I do is, you know, fairly constructed, but it's, it's, it's not really comedy. It's more, it's more wit than comedy, I guess you would say. Um, cause I grew up in a house of talkers and, and, and people who wrote and talked all the time and argued all the time. So, you know, uh, being quick and verbally fluent, um, with something that can be cutting or witty uh, amuses me. I, I like people who can, who can do comedy that isn't, or, or can do humor that isn't just broad comedy. And of course I grew up, you know, as a, was a weird kid reading, you know, Mencken and Bierce and, and, and Saki and, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of stuff that is a little bit bygone now, but, you know, the, the, as they always say that, you know, the dubious benefits of a classical education sort of serve me well in terms of being able to, to wrangle the English language around a good bit. I, you know, in America, there was a magazine in the 1970s called National Lampoon. Oh, it yeah. spun Very off famous. of the Harvard Lampoon. And so I grew up in the 70s reading that as a little kid, as a kid. And, and that sort of affected some of the, the wryness of, you know, corporate humor uh, uh, that, that exists today, in my, at least in the way I express things. So, I mean, it's it's very, very verbal and witty and, and everything. So you're, you're, you know, which goes against um, somebody getting kicked in the nuts, to be honest with you. Yeah, but I find, listen, I, I think I love watching people who are extraordinarily pompous get their ass handed to them. I love watching them have that moment of realization that they're there, that, 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 you know, that they've shit the bed and that things are going very, very wrong for them. And you get that in politics more than most other things. You rarely see it in corporate, uh, corporate life because those things are much more constrained and carefully crafted. But in politics, you can tell sometimes when somebody to, uh, to use a Southernism that my, my grandmother, who was a very colorful, uh, Southern Bell would say, um, you know, they realize there's a turd in the punch bowl. <laughs> and after there's a turd in the punch bowl, it's not punch anymore, honey. It's just turd water. They realize that they've made a mistake. I, I, that is a moment that always pleases me. Like watching bad people, watching bad people realize that they've, that they've made an error. It, it's, it's a delight for me. And again, I, I, I enjoy crafted and, and smart humor that that can play out a little bit you know i don't mind a little foreplay in my humor so are there any comics who you were particularly were drawn to you know i i can't say necessarily um you know i i liked more i like more topical and topical sort of comedy that that is more of the moment there was a group back in the um in the eighties when I was in school, when I was in college in, in Washington, DC called the Capitol steps. And they did a sort of like light com light comedic takes on the moment in DC at the time. I, I think we lack that kind of thing now because there is a certain degree of prissiness that's crept into everything. And, and, and a certain degree of, Oh God, am I going to get canceled? If I make, if I make a dick joke, um, am I going to get canceled? If I use the wrong word, 
Um, and so, you know, that sort of thing, uh, I, I feel like a lot of comedians are very restrained now in that sort of stuff. They try to be on the edge about, I, I mean, how do, you, how do you do edgy humor about a smartphone? Yeah. You, you don't. You do edgy humor about the things that always matter to people, money, sex, power, politics, religion. And none of those things can be approached in the same way anymore uh, in, in, in a lot of ways because there are too many people in the world that, that their greatest joy is, is saying, what you have said is inappropriate and now you must leave society. But do you not think that that was one of the reasons why Trump got a following was as Absolutely. an antidote? Yeah. The, 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 the transgressive nature of Trump is extraordinarily appealing. And, and for my friends on the left, and I tell them this a lot, if you do not understand that there are people in your base who do believe that if someone makes the wrong joke, they must be removed from society. They must lose their job. They must lose their platform. They must go away. If you don't understand that eventually voters make a choice, they will choose the sociopath over the scold. They will choose the nihilist asshole over the thought conformity police. I work to defeat Donald Trump, but it doesn't mean I'm a progressive. I'm fundamentally about a conservative of the individual liberty strain. And I believe that individual liberty is the, is the, is the highest goal of a system of governance. And, and if you end up where there is such a social constraint on speech, you will get a pushback. You will get a response in return that is Newtonian in, its, in, it, in the equality of its response. And so one of the reasons that you will see people who follow Trump continue to engage in the performative sort of dickery that he was known for is because they know it works. Yeah. You know why Fox News is spending weeks and weeks and weeks talking about Dr. Seuss and cancel culture? Because they know that most Americans are not far left woke progressives from Brookline, Massachusetts or from San Francisco. They know most aggressives aren't terribly woke. The scold culture, the, see, the thing I love is powerful, corrupt people getting taken down a peg. The thing they love is anyone who violates their cultural norms getting taken down completely. And, and, and that's, I think that's something that, that is a lifeline for the nationalist populist types like Trump. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, we just heard the birds to fly you by. You did. You heard a you heard a big red-tailed hawk uh, trying to get eels out of my pond. <laughs> That's a first for the human. I live in podcast. the jungle. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, is everyone funny? Do they have the capability to be funny, or is it instinctual? You know, Paul, that is a great question, and I I don't think everybody's funny. Not everybody can, I can't sing. I can do a, I can do a million things. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a polymath in a million different areas. I can't sing a note. I sound like two cats fucking in a dumpster. It's horrifying. <laughs> uh, but, but. I love that everybody. album, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's great on vinyl. Um, yeah. People, people can be funny, but they're not always humorous. I mean, 
you know, the 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 four hundred pound woman walking around Walmart screaming at people without a mask on. She's funny. She just doesn't know why. Um, but but I think it takes, I think it takes at least a respect and engagement with the language, to be humorous. And and I I I've talked to a lot of you know I in 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 part of my other work I write a lot of speeches for corporate, you know, Fortune one hundred CEOs and things, and I always have this fight with them at first, which is. Stop talking like you think your lawyers want you to talk. Speak as you speak. Sometimes it's going to be eloquent and beautiful and uplifting. And other times it's going to be your dick down in the dirt. Okay. That is the genuine thing that people really are. Okay. I could, I could, I, I could play the role of the political strategist and speak in that, in that sort of lofty blah, blah, blah tone all the time. That's not me. And there is a great power to people who are authentically funny because they are. Um, and people get that. People understand that. You, 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 you always know people like that, that, that have some inner light about their take on the world um, or their ability to, to, to withstand stuff. And I quote my grandmother a lot because she really was this wild Southern character. I mean, completely crazy as, a, as it could be, but you know, she would say Gallo's humor son is still humor. Uh. Yeah. You know, so if you're, it, you know, and that was one thing we had a lot of people ask us during the campaign, like, why don't, why don't you take Trump seriously? Well, you know, you're, you're making fun of him. Why aren't you hitting him on this issue? Well, we do take him seriously. We did take him seriously. We took him out seriously, but we, 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 we did not treat him lightly. We didn't treat him as a non-entity. We thought, We've got to go and use all the different tools in the toolbox. And I think people, when they're communicating, underestimate the value of, of wit and humor and, and a little bit of self-deprecation, you know? Yeah, I agree because, uh, I mean, as a psychologist, I get brought in a lot because I've got a performance background in comedy right. and everything. So I get brought in to where you're writing the speeches, I will be getting them to <laughs> right. deliver them and everything. And one of the first things I have to do is stop them from trying to do a gag sometimes because they step all over it. God, you know, I, I, I that to me, you know, I, I, the first time I went on Bill Maher, one of his producers said to me, he goes, you didn't write any jokes, did you? I was like, of course not. I would never do that. I'm not a comedian. And he's like, that's the right way to think about it. Bill's a comedian. He's a, he's a guy who does that craft at the top of the game like very few other people ever have. But I, I would never presume to, to be a comedian because I'm not a comedian. Um, I can be witty. I can be funny. But, uh, but I, I'm not. But I try. I, I, I know the difference and the distinction. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. But that's very important for our listeners to take away as well, is knowing what to do. Because I think people sometimes go in and go, I have to do a gag. Well, actually, comedy is more about listening and then, you know, hearing when it's appropriate to do something. Is it that's not? right. I think that's, I think that's very spot on. The, the idea that, you know, you're a CEO or a military leader or a business leader or a civic person of some kind or a political figure that you lead off with uh, with a canned gag about hey i'm happy to be in des moines you pig fuckers or whatever you know some weird ass <laughs> thing that they think is funny it's got about an 80 percent chance of going over like the proverbial turd in the punch bowl as the aforementioned turd in the punch bowl right <laughs> and, and and so all those things i think accrue to you know if you have some authenticity and 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 an engagement with what's really happening around you you're going to be funnier you're going to be more um you're, you're going to be more valuable and engaging than you will be otherwise yeah and it's in a it's in the moment where the, my, my first book uh, the pitching bible um the first chapter is called it's all about them because actually whenever you're communicating, it is about them. And actually, I would, I would argue that Trump was actually quite good at recognizing other people and what it was about, but he just didn't yeah, have- in both, in, in both the negative and, and the persuasive frames. Mm. I mean, he understood to say to his audience, he understood the demographic character of his audience and he understood the valences by which they were moved politically alienation, aggrievement, yeah. a sense that other people had more than they did um, because, they, because they were educated, not because they worked hard. Uh, there was a frank sense of racial uh, animus built into Trump's messaging to them. And how did, he get, how did he convince those people that he was one of them? He was crude. He was crass. He... he insulted his opponents in ways that were outside the bounds of political discourse in American politics. The most striking thing about it is, yes, it was enormously persuasive to those people. The most striking thing about it was it was also a roadmap to all Trump's own mental in, in, insecurities. It was also a roadmap to, because it's Trump who pretends to be the billionaire, 
He's, you know, the, the hobo's idea of a billionaire is Donald Trump incarnate. And so the idea that he was their avatar of this hatred and hostility they felt for all these people that, that they thought were not like them, e.g. not white working class rural voters and, and ex-urban voters, um, it was brilliantly crafted on his part. It was a great pitch on his part. And they tried initially to do a, a high-low. They would have Jared Kushner and other people going into private meetings and saying, it's an act. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. He's normal underneath. He's a business guy. He's just pitching. Well, it wasn't normal underneath, of course. It was, it was crazy town. And everybody eventually knew that there was no better iteration of Trump. There was no better version of Donald Trump. He was always going to be that, that guy. So what would the world be like without humor, Rick? Oh, God, it would be like the vision. Apparently, a lot of people uh, that, that uh, on the on the cancel side of the equation would love, you know, we would we would each day contemplate our sins and failings and uh, and cast ourselves into the abyss and rend rend our rend our hair shirts and everything else. I mean, uh, you know, this, it's a very sackcloth and ashes world without humor and not frankly when I don't I don't really really, really care for. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, this is a humorology podcast, and we're we're trying to go. How does humor improve your business and your life uh, generally? And uh, I I think it's it's tremendously important to actually understand the essence of what people's humor is like. And without it, I think the world is lost. Basically, uh, look, I mean, we we go back, and humor has been a part of recorded human history all the way back. I mean, there, 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 there were there were fart jokes on Sumerian tablets. Okay, this is something that is inherent, I think, to humanity. I think every culture has its variabilities in what they look at as humorous, but but it, I think it is I think it is inherent to us. I think it is something that humanity shares. It has a lot of you know variability to it, but. And without it, you do become, I mean, uh, when I started life out and when I was in college, I was a Soviet studies and philosophy major, which of course, you know, suited me perfectly for what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I was, I was doing a lot of it, it, for my senior work was um, looking at sort of uh, Soviet samizdat humor and, and the sort of incipient movements in the in the in, in inside the soviet union of how the anti-communist voices could never truly be silenced. there was always some level of wit or humor trying to sneak through and and you know you look at that as a very dark society in a lot of ways a very a very sh shielded um controlled constrained surveilled society and yet they were still making jokes about khrushchev and about Brezhnev and about Andropov even, you know, and, and, and even the ones they feared the most, there were jokes and, and humor exists in every shitty circumstance. It is something humans need. And it also exists as a way to level the playing field between power and powerlessness, between entitlement and disenfranchisement. And I think it's important we keep that sort of, uh, that we'd be mindful of that. So 
how important is it to be able to laugh at yourself? I mean, we're, I'm talking for takeaways for people listening to this. Sure. Be because, you know, we've uh, we work a lot with CEOs and people and that level of pomposity where you can't yeah. do that. You know, generally speaking, in in most Western countries now, our CEO culture is still sort of a relic of the 50s and 60s of the last century. This idea of the guy in the perfect suit and the perfectly tied tie and the French cuffs and the the serious expression and the and the and the you know the the long gaze into the future uh, that I think doesn't work the way it used to, and I think people who do take themselves too seriously um, end up in a in a box where they can be easily caricatured or or easily disrupted in a lot of ways, and. And the idea that you're like, there's a fascinating set of like trolling that a lot of people in the Trump world, do. they're like, oh, well, you're just jealous because you're bald. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's a lot of weird like physicality to that, to, to the CEO role that, that used to exist that doesn't anymore. Because what is a CEO anymore? You know, Mark Zuckerberg wears crappy sneakers and sweatpants and he's worth more money than all of us, uh, you know, by several orders of magnitude. Um, and, you know, the sort of the shift in corporate culture from the suit and tie world has had a concomitant loosening of, you know, how seriously you take yourself. And I think that's probably a good thing. So you, you would really say that leadership is enhanced by the ability to laugh, yeah? Oh, look, leadership is enhanced by the, the, by the ability to laugh not only at yourself, but with and for, not necessarily at, but with and for your people in your organization, okay? Yeah. Because managerial authority can stem from, from either love or fear. Now, fear-based organizations can work for a period of time. I mean, <laughs> yes, plenty. <laughs> <laughs> but... If your people are loyal and love you and care about the mission and the uh, my dogs are behind me, they at least yeah. love them. See, hello. <laughs> um, timing, timing. Yes, it's everything. Um, if you have a if you have a, a a culture where you know the Lincoln Project, we often call ourselves a pirate ship because we're we're not constrained by a lot of the old rules, and we actually love the analogy of the pirate ship because you know we're merry we're generally having a, a hell of a good time and you know we we are we are you know there's a lot of towel snapping inside the camp and nobody's safe from anybody going at them because you know we, and we've built that culture where i want when i say to one of our somebody who works for me hey go execute this they know they're going to go execute it. I trust them to go execute on what they're going to do because we hire smart people to do smart things. And, and, and I also know they're not going to freak out if I say return with a return with a mountain of skulls, you know, or something <laughs> like that. They, they, they get it. And so the, the pirate ship analogy in part is because there's some swashbuckling. There's some, there's some happiness about it. You know, there was a, there's a, a, a word called berserker gang 
which was the sort of Viking trance they got into in combat where they were just like, fuck it. And they went at it. And, and so I think if you've got an organization that, that ha are happy together and have fun together and, and, and are amused and you know what? And nobody's exempt. So we have this uh, broadcast that we do called uh, Lincoln Project Television. And one night I'm, out, I'm on the set, I'm doing the show. And one of our guys from the political office, this kid Lucas comes walking past behind me wearing a full Abe Lincoln outfit. And they're doing their very best to crack me up on TV. And I'm doing my very best not to crack up. But finally I like look down and like, oh, for fuck's sake. But you know, you, an organization that can't have any fun that doesn't have any, any sense of, of, of lightness. Like I said, they function for a while, but they fall apart um, very quickly. So I, if I actually asked you to make a formal business case for humor in the office, what would you actually include in it? Well, look, I would say this. Humor is an expression of the authenticity of the character of your leadership. Because not every person is a rigid automaton. And being able to, to show humor is a way of connecting the people who work with and for you and to, be, and to connect with your clients and your customers um, with a genuine sense of who you are as a person and as a corporate culture. And... And that, that is an, a, an attraction that doesn't exist. You can't buy that with advertising, okay? You can't buy that in a corporate culture by, by going on rock climbing retreats. There's a degree to which everybody's sitting around the table going, fuck you, and having a good time about it um, is, is a bonding, uh, has a bonding value that you don't get elsewhere. And look, there is a degree to when humor becomes something very pointed and ugly and, and corrosive, but that's not humor. That's verbal cruelty disguised as humor. Okay, and that you do have to you do have to watch for that. You have to you have to monitor that because there are people who will abuse that kind of thing. Um, but for the most part, again, I think I think actual humor is a is a is a gauge of authenticity of the self. And anybody who, who wants to just be the most serious of serious people, go be an actuary, you know, <laughs> go, go be an insurance adjuster or whatever. I'm sure there are funny insurance adjusters, but there are a lot of people who they see you as a real person when they know what makes you laugh. Yeah. And uh, I mean, actually, what we have to do and what you're brilliant at is selling this to people. So what's the return on investment so that the accountants can go? Ah, yeah, that's worth it. Well, as I like to say, the accountants can fuck off if they don't like it. But <laughs> um, no, look, the, 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 the return on investment is a corporate culture that is stronger and more resilient. And more bonded. Um, the return on investment on the external front is that you don't take yourself too seriously. You don't, you don't look at yourself. And look, there's a, there's, a, there's a spectrum, okay? On the one hand, you don't wanna be trying to be hokey, corny, funny. You don't wanna be GoDaddy in American advertising, okay? Yeah. But neither do you wanna be so stiff and rigid and boring and, and, and unengaging that clients, customers, and, and your employees go, 
uh, my work's okay, but and their their product's fine, but yeah, and look, not every product needs a joke about it. Not every person needs to be funny all the time, but showing enough of it, it's the hot sauce theory. Okay, any idiot can use too much hot sauce. It takes a genius to use the right amount. That idea of calibrating your your the way humor plays, I mean that 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 is something that. If you do it right, I think you get a great corporate culture. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's a there's a great study in America that said 70.9% of people will change supplier based on one um, statistic, and that is if the supplier is more fun. Yeah, and, sure. And I, sure. I think fun is completely undervalued. Uh, people fun, want fun, fun is to replace. Fun is, yes, fun is a... Fun, fun is a under underappreciated, uh, you know, image asset in organizations. And again, the pirate ship. You know, when the Lincoln Project was fighting Trump, we weren't we weren't just out every day saying, "If we don't defeat him, he will destroy democracy." You know, we were out. We have to get rid of this guy because he can't walk down a ramp. He can't drink <laughs> water with one hand. We have to get rid of this guy because he, he's a he's a he's a buffoon and a clown, and he's humiliating you by by pretending to be president. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's definitely an underappreciated asset. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Have you uh, ever? And I, I presume this is going to be true. Have you ever taken a joke too far and crossed the line? Oh, sure. One time on MSNBC, uh, a, a lot of the alt right in American politics really supported Trump. These, these neo-racist guys, the neo, neo-fascists and neo-Nazi guys. And I was on Chris Hayes' show and I said, a lot of these alt-right guys are home in their mom's basement masturbating to anime. <laughs> that joke probably could have not been on TV. The, the, the collective pin drop from that one was fairly excessive. <laughs> I, I I think you coined the phrase about Trump as Trump as a fecal Midas. Did you? Yes, not? yes, he's a fecal that's Midas. One my, that's one of my favorites as well. <laughs> I, I don't think you crossed the line there, but uh, no, I know. don't think that was uh, that wasn't over the line. Masturbating to anime was a little far, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, in business, is it is it survival of the fittest or survival of the funniest? Well, again, going back to that gallows humor thing, you don't have to be unfunny to be fit. Yeah. You know, in fact, you probably are more resilient if you can take and make a joke. You're probably more resilient if you can find if you can find a, a moment of humor in even the worst days. I mean, look, our organization's had a couple of rough weeks. You know, we've had some we've had some some stuff in our organization. It hasn't been great. But, you know, we wake up every morning and it's like, all right, what's on the goddamn horizon today? What fresh hell is this? And we get through it in part because our core team of people, we believe in each other, we believe in our mission, we believe in our cause. We also believe we're not gonna take ourselves too damn seriously every day. We're not gonna get up every morning because if we did, the ridiculousness of some of the attacks against us would hurt. Well, I think it's very important that, I mean, you talked about when things go wrong. Surely that's when humor makes you stronger as well. That's resilience comes through a, a sense of humor, yeah. does it not? You know, I, I, um, 
I really, I really truly believe that. And, and that idea that you can look at the worst moments and find something about them to, to mock or, or to contextualize it or to make it lighter. I think that's a really strong character trait. If you can do that, you're a stronger person. And you, if you don't take yourself too seriously or, or believe so, you know, try not to buy all of your own bullshit is a, is a pretty good rule in everything in life. And if you can do that and you can come out of it with, again, with a balanced sense of, uh, of humor, um, you know, I was, I'm a, I'm a private pilot. One of my instrument flight instructors one day, we had a little problem in the plane and I said, okay, I'm running the checklist. And I went through like A, B, C, and D. And, and I said, I said, you want to take this over? If we, uh, if I can't figure this out, he goes, he goes, no, nah. he goes, by the time you can't figure it out, we're going to be a greasy stain. So you might as well get to it, you know? And I was like, okay, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. Engine stopped, but it's okay. <laughs> so, you know, uh, again, I think humor, that, that authenticity um, of being able to admit you're in a bad space and while you're taking it seriously, you're not taking yourself overly seriously. Um, it's, it's one of the things I think that is a, a matter that builds strength and flexibility and that resilience I keep talking about into organizations and people that aren't that way and who can't take anything, who can't find humor in anything, who don't have that certain, a sense of joy, even in the shitty moments, you know, they, they are much less able to handle these things. Yeah, resilience again. Um, well, we've reached a part of the show, Rick, which is called Quick Fire Questions. Quick Fire Questions. Who's the funniest person in business or politics that you've ever met? Funniest person in politics I ever met was a guy named Ray Harding. Ray was a, uh, a Serbian refugee from the Holocaust who came to America, went to the US Army, became an American citizen, became Rudy Giuliani's like chief political counselor. But Ray had this unbelievable, constant, low, dark patter about everything. And it was always like just, just perfectly balanced and eviscerating pompous people in particular. Ray was one of the funniest human beings I ever met. Lavishly corrupt. He chain smoked camel cigarettes back to back. He was enormous. Um, went, got in all kinds of legal trouble, a classic New York City character. Oh, well, I, uh, is he still with us or is he no, gone raise now? Past. Raise oh, past. Oh, it's a shame. I would have loved to have met him. Uh, what book makes you laugh? What book makes me laugh? You know, uh, there's a book called Augustus Carp. I'm struggling to remember the author at the moment. It's, it's a little, it, it's this parody basically of Victorian manners that just, kills me every time it is just it's it's so spot on about the sort of the the do-gooder victorianism it just it is one of my favorite comic novels it's really really brilliant what film makes you laugh rick dirty rotten scoundrels every goddamn time oh it is just about the perfect comedy it, it is so so well crafted i it is my it is my favorite it is my favorite comedy by an order of magnitude. 
oh, Steve Martin in that film is just hilarious. Okay. I mean, it's perfectly spot on. I love the scene at the dining room table when he goes, may I go to the lavatory? <laughs> right. <laughs> Mother. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just Rex, do you want the genital cuff? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It is genius. It is genius. And even I mean, that's how good it is that all we have to do is think about it and we right. start to laugh. That's right. the perfect in psychological terms anchor for you. Mm -hmm. You just think about it. And what a genius. And by the way, what a great um, his autobiography, Born Standing Up. Yes. That's terrific. a great book as Tremendous. well. What word makes you laugh? What word makes me laugh? Precious. I don't know why. What, I, and I guess it's because I was raised in the South because Southern women can use the word precious to mean everything from that's beautiful to fuck you. Oh, and it always cracks me up. I don't know why, <laughs> but someone says, Oh, that's precious. <laughs> I just... <laughs> yeah. It's a great word. I was, I was thinking in, in Lord of the Rings. My precious. <laughs> right. and now... <laughs> my precious. <laughs> yes. Okay. Shifting over to the other side. Um, I know you're a libertarian uh, at heart, but what's not funny? Is there anything that's not funny? Look, I mean, there are things that are not funny in this world. Like genocide is not funny, okay? Um, um, organized racial hatred is, uh, is not funny. Now, the people that do those things are inherently funny because they're always the worst possible fuck-ups, no matter where they're found in the world. I mean, I, I guarantee you, other than skin color, that there's very little derivation between them about how broken they are as individuals and why they start doing those things. You know, yeah. it, it just, it, it is, it is the, the universality of shittiness is something that, 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 you know, those kind of things are not funny. They're just not funny. But weirdly, a lot of things can be funny that you might think aren't funny. I mean, some of my, some, one of my best friends survived cancer a few years ago, and she just has this mordant sense of humor about it, and that got her through it. It was a compensation and coping mechanism that at first you're like, okay, but then you realize it's like, it's like, that's defiance. Comedy can, humor can be defiance. Like, just like the Soviets that we talked about earlier, that was defiance against authoritarianism. And in her case, that was defiance against the disease that was that was really trying hard to kill her. The idea that that there are unfunny things in the world, yeah, there are plenty of unfunny things. Child molesters, not funny. Hanging child molesters by the neck until dead, more funny. But you know, it, it, it's like I fear I'm more afraid of a society that thinks that a lot of things are off limits for humor than a society that thinks only a few things are off limits for humor. It's the old Voltaire thing, you know. Let, let me know who you can mock, and I'll tell you who's powerful. Uh, yes. Um, it was a Voltaire Moliere. I think it's Voltaire. Um, but all those, you know, all those areas of our societies that we that we take very very seriously, we also ought to look at it as you know, in a broader perspective. That occasionally that seriousness is because we don't we don't want to look at it hard enough. And sometimes we don't want to look at things because we think of everything as too existential and too black and white and too consequential. And, you know, the other day, somebody asked me about, they asked me about, you know, my position on climate change. I was like, 
climate change is real. What, what about it? And they're like, well, well, you were a Republican, you oppose. I'm like, no, actually, I, 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 I believe that markets have a power. We should put them to work in dealing with climate change. Also, I believe unless you're willing to put a hydrogen bomb in a volcano and set it off to help climate change, you're not really serious about it. And this guy's just like, wait, what? 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 <laughs> I mean, well, look, if the volcanoes cool the earth, we might as well use them. And I, and I, when I realized he do, did not have the ability to cognitively like connect that I was being funny, <laughs> I deadpanned it even further. Of course. And by the end of it, he finally like something went finally like, oh, wait, you're joking about a hydrogen bomb in a volcano. I'm like, you think? <laughs> <laughs> It's not that I would pushing. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no it's, uh, Would you rather be considered clever or funny? Clever. Really? Yeah. Because funny because comes clever easy. Clever is funny. Oh yeah, that's where I was going with this because See, I clever, I clever and smart are two different things. I know plenty of smart guys who aren't funny. So I, clever I, is I, funny. I'm a, I'm a I'm a relatively smart guy who is funny. Yeah. Well, no, no, but that's really interesting because uh, I, I think in order to be really funny, you have to be really clever. Yes, yes, you do. Um, clever comes from a power of observation about what's happening around you and the ability to integrate that information quickly into a, into a, into a, a schema, a worldview, if you will. And, and that lets you be funny. You know, quick on the uptake is the essential nature of, of, of humor in a lot of ways, of observational humor, particularly. Yeah, I completely agree. And finally, Rick, desert island gags. If you could only take one joke with you to a desert island, what would that be? The last man on earth sat, al sat alone in a room. There was a knock at the door. <laughs> <laughs> yes, nicely done. Philosophy jokes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wonder how many of our audience that's gone way over their heads. But that's a good thing because they'll be thinking about it. And you've given us so much to think about, so much to laugh about. Rick Wilson, thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. I love being with you guys. The Humorology podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky production. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.